Good to be with you guys this morning um, in this way. I hope you guys are well. Man, uh, uh, we started last week this break from the Gospel of Luke for three weeks uh, as we were exploring our new why we exist, our purpose statement as a church. And we're taking these last last week, this week, and next week to kind of look at three foundational texts uh, that have kind of really informed and shaped our purpose as a church. And last week we looked at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and we saw fundamentally that we exist to glorify God, that we exist to glorify God. And the way that John 15 describes that is that we glorify God in, in, in our being a disciple of Jesus. It's through our abiding in Christ. And as we abide in the vine, who is Jesus, uh, we bear fruit, and that fruit brings glory to God. And even John, in that, in that exact passage, describes fruit as, as Christ-like character. It's, it's the way that we love each other. It's the joy that he's, he's placed in us, kind of spilling out. It's the fruit of that kind of spirit. And so, um, but just, just in case uh, you kind of walked away last week thinking, all right, all I got to do now is just kind of move into the forest and we can kind of kumbaya until Jesus returns, you know, and just kind of like be alone with him sort of idea. Um, we just got to get away from all the bad stuff and go be alone with him for the rest of our life. You're going to be a little bit disappointed, you know, because uh, we are told this morning that even in our abiding, we are given a, a worldwide task that each one of us is called to. See, everyone is on a mission. You walked in here this morning on a mission right? You're after something. Even if your mission right now is to find a mission, you know, if you're at that place in your life, you're like, what's my purpose in life sort of thing. So I'm just curious, you know, what are you, what are you aiming for in life? You know, when you woke up this morning, you know, what are, what are you going for? What are you after? What are you trying to achieve? What are you, what are you trying to gain? What are you doing at all costs? You know, what are you trying to avoid losing, you know, at all costs? I think these are the kinds of questions that get us an honest discovery of what it is that we are living for, what it is that our mission is in life. I don't know about you, I might be alone in this, but I absolutely love all the Mission Impossible movies. Um, I'm sure maybe you've seen one, even if you're forced to watch one at one point, but uh, if you're unfamiliar, they keep pumping these things out for decades, but Tom Cruise, uh, who's somehow still in amazing shape and everything, him and his his group of people are are given a, a mission, like a secret mission that after they, you know, receive in the beginning of the film, that mission self-destructs, right? But you know from the point that you see what that mission is, you know that the rest of the movie is going to be about that mission. You know that Tom's not going to get that secret mission and go, okay, and it self-destructs and he kind of just goes on a vacation with his family or something like that, right? Like, you know what the rest of the movie is going to be out because you've seen the mission, right? Even if it self-destructs. See, in a similar way, if you're a Christian, God has given you a mission in life. And lucky for us, it did not self-destruct, okay? And we get to be reminded of it again on a morning like this. And I'm just kind of curious if the mission Jesus has given us lines up with the mission you walked in here this morning with. This is not just uh, Gresham Bible's mission, but God has actually given this mission to every single church on the planet. And so if GBC is not yet your home church or if you end up deciding, hey, this is not going to be my home church, that kind of idea, I just, that's amazing. There's many, many good churches out there that you could be a part of. And I would just strongly encourage you to join up with a church that is committed to this mission. I, I encourage you to, to do that. Okay? 
So this morning we're looking at this iconic passage in Matthew chapter 28, and I just want to encourage you to lean in, not sit back, because I bet when, when Joe read that, you were like, okay, got it, like we've done this before, you know. But press in here. God's Word is alive and active. And uh, I have four things, believe it or not, that I want us to see from these five verses. Four questions, really. The first question is, why should this be our mission? Why should this be our mission? We see that in verses 16 through 18. What is the mission? We see that in verse 19. How do we carry out the mission? We see that in 19 through 20. And then where will we get the courage to actually do this? All right, so first, why should we receive Matthew 28 as our mission as a church? Why should you receive Matthew 28 as your mission in life? Well, let's look in verse 16. What does it say? Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's start by asking what most of us usually skip over. Who is this mission given to? Who's it given to? Who is he talking to? Well, verse 17 answers that. It's people who have seen the resurrected Jesus. And what are they doing? Some are worshiping him and some are doubting him, right? Right? Doubting something at minimum, right? Some are worshiping and some are doubting. This is who Jesus is talking to. And it says that he said to them, who? The worshipers and the doubters, but they all showed up, right? They, they all heard this is where we're supposed to be. They all go. Some worship, some, are, some have some questions, right? But Jesus says to all of these people, right? What? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus looks at these worshiping people, these doubting people, and he makes an audacious declaration that not just some authority has been given to him, but all authority. Authority where? In that region, right? In the, it was like a city given to Jesus, not even close. Instead, all authority in heaven, so this is like the authority of God, okay, was given to him. All authority on earth has been given to him. He possesses all authority, meaning that there is no one with more authority than Jesus. Right? There is no one who can come in and say, I know Jesus told you to do that, but actually you should do this. Right? No one has more authority. Plus, this means that there is no one person on the face of the planet. There is not a location, right? There is not even an institution. There is literally nothing that Jesus doesn't have authority over in heaven and on earth. Do you believe that? Do you see that? He possesses it all. He is the highest. He is giving these people and he is giving us the reason why he can say what he's about to say. And why you and I, upon hearing what he has to say, should actually go out and do what he's asking us to do, right? Because he is our authority and he has spoken, right? Let's be honest, we don't really like authority, right? Anybody in here like authority? I mean, not having it, but someone else having it over you, okay? We all like to have authority, but who, who likes to have someone be an authority over you, right? We don't like it, but we understand it, don't we, Right? Like, you get this, like, if you were working tomorrow and I somehow could go into your workplace and just show up, 
and say, hey, you know, Preston, um, that's not how you're supposed to do that. Actually, I want you to do this, and then when you're done with that, I want you to go and do this. Like, you're going to look at me, and you're going to think I'm being ridiculous, right? You're going to think I'm joking with you, right? Because I can't go into your work and tell you what to do, right? But I imagine, like, you have a boss, right? And so if they came in and told you to do something, you're going you're gonna to follow that. We get this kind of concept, right? Like, I can't just show up at your workplace and tell you what to do, right? But your boss could tell you what to do, and you might drag your feet. You might not want to do it, but at the end of the day, you're going to do it. Why? Because that's your, your boss. Right? We get what authority is. So, guys, we might not like authority, but we understand it. And the reason that we don't like authority is honestly because we long to possess it ourselves, But in this one audacious statement of Jesus, we discover that any authority that any of us have is simply borrowed authority. It's stewarded authority that ultimately belongs to Jesus. He possesses it all. And so, therefore, there isn't anything that he could say to us where we would look at him and say, oh, Jesus, that's silly. I don't have to listen to that. You don't have authority over my work life. You don't have authority over my parenting. You don't have authority in my friendships. You don't have authority in this area. So Jesus has authority over my entire life, and there's nothing that he can say of me that wouldn't be something I need to listen to and follow. If that's the case, then you and I sit here in this moment as followers of Jesus, and we realize that there is actually no one exempt from this mission if we claim Christ. So what is the mission? Look in verse 19. What does it say? It's pretty straightforward and simple. Go and make disciples of all nations. Right, think, of, think of the contrast of this, though. I mean, look back in, in verses 11 through 15. Uh, we have a key word there, actually, at the beginning of verse 16. It says, now, which is connecting. It's like a connective link word. It's telling you, hey, this is all connected to what just came before. What happens in verses 11 through 15? What does it say? While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a different sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. But so, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Do you see what's happening here? Right, Jesus was resurrected, and we have these guards who were at the tomb, who we see up at verse 4, what does it say? These guards had fear come over them, and they trembled, and they became like dead men. Why? Verse 3 says, Jesus' appearance was like lightning and his clothes white like snow. So these people saw the resurrected Jesus. They felt like dead people. They ran into the city and they said, this is what's happened to the chief priests. And they said, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to give you this money if you just keep quiet. But not only keep quiet about this, we want you to spread a false idea that the disciples came in the middle of the night and they stole the body. And the soldiers did exactly what Judas did, right? They took the money. They said, all right. And it says, and that word has been spread to this day. Do you see sort of the backdrop for how this mission is given to to Jesus' people? It's in light of there being a completely counter mission being given. There's there's a message going out, Jesus is dead, right? And his disciples want you to believe that he's alive, but he's dead. While his disciples sit at the feet of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and they hear these words from him to go out, and to tell people he's alive. 
and to help other people follow him. Right? Do you see, do you see this? This is amazing. Really, it, it's not a neutral mission. This is not going to come without opposition, but here we get it, right? Jesus is giving a command to spend your life, for you to spend your life focusing on this one great grand purpose, make disciples, right? To, to tell the world that Jesus is alive and that he is worthy of your life. D.A. Carson says, a disciple is someone who hears, understands, and obeys Jesus' teaching. He says that's what a disciple is. They hear, they understand, they obey Jesus' teaching. Last week I attempted to say that a disciple is someone who hears, understands, and obeys Jesus' teaching, uh, but I, I equated that to that it involves all of our faculties, right? Our head, our hearts, and our hands, right? We need to hear the Word of God, right? Hear Jesus' teaching, but that teaching is not just informational to us. It's meant to get into our heart. We should understand it. And as we understand it, it shapes our will, our desires. But that understanding actually results in obedience, right? In activity, a transformed life, right? Our hands, right? See this? This is the task to go out and help people follow Jesus and make other disciples of Jesus. This is it. This is our purpose. This is your purpose today. Even in a weird and difficult year like we are in, this is not a seasonal call, right? When I was six years old, I don't know who, but somebody gave me a coffee mug for a gift, okay? And I get why, because it had a, a San Francisco 49ers helmet on it, and it's well-reported, I love the 49ers, okay? But as a six-year-old, I got that mug, and I was just like, great, it's a decoration. And I put that thing on my dresser, for decades, okay? Put this thing on my dresser, and uh, I use this mug as a decoration. I, I did maybe put like change in it or loose random things, you know? I would dust it from time to time. That's all this thing was to us until I got married and my wife was like, this is not gonna be our decorations. You know, like we're gonna get rid of this. So that thing went into our, you know, a kitchen cabinet and I began to use that mug with the purpose for which it was designed, right? You could say that mug was commissioned out of that, that factory that it was made in, to do what? To, to hold hot drinks for people to drink out of, right? That's why there's a handle, you know, like it's hot, you need a handle for that, right? That, that's what its purpose is. And so now I actually, it's at my office, I drink coffee out of this mug. It is fulfilling its designed purpose for which it was made, right? And we get this as Christians, right? When God has saved us in Christ, he didn't just save us so that we can, like I said, kumbaya in our home somewhere, but he has saved us from something, our sin. He saved us from death itself. He saved us from hell. And he has saved us to something with a new, great, grand, global mission. And it is to go out and make disciples. We are not to be Christian decorations. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus for a purpose, right? So, so who are we to focus our mission on? Don't miss that. What does it say? All people all people. That that means that there isn't a person in the world who doesn't fall underneath the banner of our call, right? To go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations is literally talking about just people groups, not just somebody with a flag, but, but people groups, right? All peoples. God doesn't have favorites, does he? Right? We do, and we must recognize that we do, or else we will fool ourselves into believing that God really, mainly, loves and cares about people 
who are more like me. But God has a global heart. He has a heart for all peoples. He has a heart for all nations. And he is in the business of saving people and changing their hearts to begin to have compassion and love for people who don't at all look like them, talk like them, believe like them. Right? This means God has a heart for the Turkish people. Right? That God has a heart for the French. You know? God has a heart for the Somali people. He has a heart for your neighbor. He has a heart for Portlanders. Right? God has a heart for all people, and he's commissioned his people to go and tell, do you believe this? Do you really believe this and the implication this has on your life? God doesn't have favorites. His heart bleeds in every people group on the planet, and his desire is for your heart to bleed like that too. So therefore, don't miss the idea that the very person Jesus is calling you to invest your life in and help them come to know and follow him might just be someone who wouldn't normally be your friend. They might not normally be someone that you just see eye to eye with perfectly. This is what we do and who we do it with, all nations. There's no boundaries. There's no favorites. Right? How do we do this? Look at verse 19. What does it say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? I think it's important when, when, when we read this that we understand there really is only one command here, and that's actually to make disciples. Okay? It's to make disciples. But there are other words that look like commands here, and they, and they are in a way, but they're really um, participles if you care about grammar, okay? But these are basically showing you how you go about making disciples, basically. And there's three of them. There's the word go, there's the word baptize, and there's the word teach. And this is instructing us, at least in part, how we make disciples. So look at the first one there. What does it say? Go and make disciples. This is really interesting because this actually is forming a pretty big contrast to something Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. If you look in chapter 10, in verse 5 and following, Jesus sends out his disciples there, but what does he say? He says, don't go. It's really interesting. He says, do not go among the Gentiles. Don't enter, enter any town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So early in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, don't go. And here he gets to the very end, and he says, go everywhere. Go everywhere, all peoples. And this word go is what you think it would mean. It literally means leave from the place you are and go in a different direction, right? Like, a, this, is, this is not rocket science, right? right? Therefore, go could literally mean that Jesus could say to you this morning, get up and leave. Pack your belongings in your life and go to a people and tell them about me. Tell them that I am alive, that I am resurrected. This could be a people group that you've never met. It could be in a part of the world that you've never been before. It, would, it could require that you commit your life to being there for years just to learn the language and spread the gospel amongst those people. Jesus could tell you to do that, right? And maybe that's the case for some of you this morning. But at the very heart of this is the idea as you are going, meaning every day, all the time. It's not just for missionaries kind of thing. Wherever you are, as you are doing life, 
make disciples. Do you see what this means? This means that discipleship is not merely something that you schedule. It's not merely reading books with other people. It's not merely drinking coffee across the table from somebody else. It's a way of life. It's everything that I'm doing. I'm just inviting you into it, which just should be encouraging for you because in a real sense, this means that you don't have to create margin in your life to make disciples. You can just invite people into your everyday life as it is. You're going to run errands anyways, right? Someone go with you, right? You're going to eat lunch today, aren't you? You can eat with somebody else. You're going to celebrate Christmas, I imagine. You could have somebody over, right? You're going to do these things already. You could just do them with people. That's part of the implication here. A powerful thing in my life, uh, I've said this before, but um, when I freshly really came to Christ early on in college, um, I met Mike Regelman at college, and he uh, really was one of the first people who kind of poured into me. I don't even know how aware of it he was. And I think when most of us think of discipleship, we think of, I have to have the answers, I've got to teach you what to do, and that kind of thing. And no offense to Mike, I don't remember one thing he ever said to me, like not even once. Um, I, I have no quotes, you know. But I do remember how Mike lived. I remember when Mike would continually invite me into his life. Hey, I'm doing this thing tonight. You should come. Hey, I have this intramural basketball team. You should be on it. And I remember constantly thinking, like, I love basketball, but I am easily one of the worst players out of all everybody that he could pick. Why me? You know? And in hindsight, now I see what he was doing. But he was just, I'm going to play basketball anyways. I'll just have Josh come on the team. Right? We'll, we'll suffer, you know, so he could maybe see how to live his life. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. But this is the idea, right? He didn't, I, I imagine he didn't create Marty. He's not like, okay, now how I, can I schedule my time to be with Josh? He's just, this is what I'm doing with my life. You should come along with it. Do you see that? It's kind of the idea. But the second thing is what? Baptizing. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, one, this is telling you that this is not merely an individual effort. This is a church-wide effort. Because we all know this. You don't just baptize your buddy in the river, and you don't baptize yourself. Churches baptize people, right? So discipleship is a community event primarily. But this is also signaling that to make disciples includes evangelism. It means I'm going to share the gospel that Jesus has died and has resurrected and he is, he's alive, you know. We come to him in faith and be saved, right? And so it includes that idea that discipleship starts with people who don't know Jesus and through our life example, through our our sharing of that gospel, people come to a place of faith and they are baptized, right? They enter into the waters of baptism and that is symbolic, that they have received the, the message and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as their only hope of salvation. Right? We get that that's what baptism is, that, that, that we are giving our lives to Jesus in full allegiance because he has given his life for us. But see here, we're baptized into the triune God, right? That, that's, that means that we are no longer finding our identity in our, no, our own name, but in His name. Right? So we're to baptize people. But thirdly, it says teaching, which is showing us that to be a disciple is, a, is, a, is an ongoing, lifelong process that no one ever arrives. Right? We all need to have a teachable spirit then. If we're not only to be teaching, but this means that someone's going to be teaching you. We're not teaching each other good ideas. We're teaching each other what Jesus has commanded us to do. That's what it says, teaching them to obey or observe everything that God has commanded us. All right, which, this is why we should be Bible-saturated 
people, right? This is why we need the Bible. This is why we seek to sit under it and saturate ourselves in it. That's why as a church we're committed to this on Sundays, opening up the scriptures and expositing it to each other, right? We are, we are people who are shaped by this, by this action. This is critical, and it emphasizes how someone is discipled, how we are discipled in general in our lives. We're being shaped, we're being taught and guided by those who we let have authority over us. You are giving authority to other people in your life all the time, and they're constantly teaching you different things, and that is shaping you. And what you give your attention and study to is shaping the way that you view the world. It's shaping the way that you live your life. Therefore, we need to be taught to follow Jesus, and we need other people in our lives to continually do that. So let's just be honest really quick. This is not rocket science, right? I really don't have anything fancy or mind-blowing to give to you when it comes to this question, how do you make a disciple? It has never changed. It's always been there. It's by going. It's by sharing the gospel. It's by teaching the Word of God. We follow Jesus. We help other people follow Jesus by doing the same things that Christians have done forever. It's not flashy, right? And isn't that the problem? Like, we want it to be, don't we? Like, you don't have to admit this, but I bet you when Joe got up here and read our text, there was a little bit of a mild yawn inside of you if you've been a Christian for any length of time, right? You don't have to verbally acknowledge that. But we want this to be flashy, right? We want this to be new. I mean, who doesn't want something new? I mean, if someone offered me a brand new van today, I'd be happy to give up my 06 Odyssey that has some problems. We like new cars over old cars, right? We like new clothes over old clothes. New is always better unless it's really, really old, you know, and then that's kind of cool, right? But we love new. We, we love something that's, that's a bit up to speed. And so what do we do when it comes to this kind of mission in our life? We make excuses. We might say, well, I have my doubts. I'm not ready. Jesus still has all authority, though. Oh, I need a good strategy. Isn't there like a new curriculum we could use? Right? Well, I need to be a mature believer for X amount of years. Right? And see, this is the problem. We don't lack the knowledge of what we're supposed to do. We might even be taking notes this morning. And unless you're a brand new believer, I doubt very easily that you're sitting there writing down stuff thinking, I've never thought of this before. Right? I mean, sure, it's maybe helpful to think about how you don't maybe need to completely reorganize your whole schedule to follow this commission. You can just invite people into your life. Maybe that's helpful in some ways this morning. But ultimately, ultimately, the crux of the matter is this, guys. We don't lack the information to do this. We lack the interest and we lack the power to do it, right? We, we know what we should be doing. We often lack the power to bring us to the places where we actually do it. Uh, for example, I, I know how to dunk basketball, right? I know if I ran over to that hoop, jumped really high, slammed the ball through the rim, I would have dunked it. I know exactly how to do it. Never done it, right? I lack the power to do it. If we lowered that to eight feet, I might get my fingertips over it, you know, but that's about it, right? I know how to dunk a basketball. I lack the power to do it. 
And so what do you think it will take for those things to begin to overlap in your life? If you, if you don't lack the knowledge this morning, this is my mission, you just lack the interest and the power, what do you think it'll take to make those things overlap? To where you really joyfully experience this global commission of Jesus upon your life. I suggest to you it's a part found in verse 20. What does Jesus say? Go out and do this, and good luck. I'll see you in heaven. No, he says what? Behold, right, which you all know is like my favorite word in the Bible. Behold, look at this. I am with you always to the end of the age. What an interesting thing we have here. Matthew writes a gospel account of Jesus' ministry and life, and the very final words that he pens are Jesus' promise that he will always be with us. And do you remember how Matthew's gospel began? It was what? It was through the genealogy of Jesus and the sending, the promised sending of Jesus, and what does the beginning of Matthew's gospel say? You shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So out of the gate in Matthew's account, he says, I'm sending you Emmanuel, son of God. He'll be with you. Jesus is about to leave, and Jesus promises us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? He, he's telling us something. There's something that you need that you lack and only God can provide, and that is the presence of God in your everyday life. What a comforting statement this is, isn't it? But this comfort isn't meant to kind of wrap you in a warm blanket and lull you to sleep. This kind of comfort will give you a courage in life that you didn't have before. Because why? Jesus, the king of the universe, doesn't say to you, I am the one with all authority, listen to me, go, here's what to do, good luck. He says, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I'm doing this. I'm doing this, right? It always makes me think of my, um, my art teacher in high school, Mrs. Robinson. I am really bad at art, and, um, but, and she obviously must have known that because I would do the thing for the day, maybe it's watercolor or painting, a, a rose or something like that. And um, I just tried my best, but it looked horrible. But for some reason, Miss Robinson would come over and she would applaud the work that I had done and she would grab my brush and kind of do her own little thing on there. And it looked really good. Like it started to look good and it was really weird. I always wondered if she really realized what she was doing because she's kind of doing my work for me and then grading my work, giving me good grades and I go home. And my mom thinks I'm a great artist, but it was not at all. You know, and that was exposed whenever we'd have a substitute, okay, because it was just a disaster. But nonetheless, my mom thought I was an amazing artist. I was getting grades like I was an amazing artist. I was not an amazing artist. Why? Because Miss Robinson's presence made me a better artist, right? She, it really did. She really did. Right? So I, I felt more confident as I went into that art class than I began in the year with. I was like, this is going to be a, horrible for me. But I would grow in my confidence. I would grow in my courage as I went about that class throughout the years. And I think for some years now, in a similar way, I've prayed a very simple, but in my life, strikingly profound prayer. That is, God, may I be confident in your ability and not my own. God, may I be confident in your ability and not my own. 
when that clicks in your life and you recognize that God is always with you, that'll change you. If you know me for any length of time and we've had any relative meaningful conversation with some honesty and depth to it, you would probably know that one of the things I've struggled with most in my life is confidence. It resonates with me very much, the, the sort of commissioning of Joshua after Moses dies. I mean, here's an iconic Moses who dies, and, and God says, Joshua, you're the man to lead. And he doesn't say, be courageous, Joshua, because you're an amazing leader. You can do this. You've got all the skills. You've got all the information. Nope. He doesn't say it at all. He says, be strong and courageous because I will be with you wherever you go. If we are honest, we fail to remember what Jesus is with us in the power of the Spirit of God. He lives inside of us. He's with us every moment of the day, whether you acknowledge Him or not. And that was only achieved when you and I found ourselves up against a wall that was our sin. That that separation from God because of our sin. We were separated from His presence, but Jesus descended over that wall and He broke down the wall through his death and resurrection, so that you and I could have this forever access to God's presence. And now, the future that we're headed towards, the great joy of that future is the fact that God will be with us. We will be in his unhindered presence. That is the hope that we have of heaven, and Jesus has achieved this for us, and he's promised it for you. Even in the meantime, he is always there, and your understanding of that empowers you to go because it's not on you. It's on him, and he will work through you. Jesus, the ultimate sent one, commissions us, but he's going with us every step of the way. This is our mission, and this is the promise. Does this interest you? Does this interest you? Does this maybe feel like somebody comes up to you this morning and they said, hey, you should build a boat. I I want you to build a boat. So go get a bunch of the materials. Here's the blueprints. Here's a couple people to help. Get it done by Friday. Does it kind of feel like that? One of my favorite quotes is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. who says, if you want to build a ship, Don't drum up the men and gather wood and divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach the men to yearn for the vast and the endless sea. His point is, there's two ways to build a boat. You could do it with your feet dragging, or you can do it because you want to be on the sea. If you want to be on the sea, you're going to build a boat. You're going to build a boat. Right? This interested the disciples, didn't it? They were joyfully suffering, we see, from this point forward for this cause. And their disciple-making produced more disciples and produced more disciples, and that landed you in this room this morning, didn't it? Didn't it? Right? This commission begins with worship. They're worshiping at the feet of Jesus. They beheld the resurrected king who had died for them. And no matter how significant or insignificant others thought of them, Jesus died for them and brought them near and sent them out. 
this commissioning and our commissioning starts from a place of worship, if our hearts are captivated then, by the glory of Jesus, all the rest of what follows here will be a joyful work. It'll be a joyful work. Guys, we are, we are not committed uh, to maintenance as a church. Right, we are committed to this mission. And our goal is not to see how creative we can be, but how worshipfully faithful we can be. Father God, this morning as we um, just experience your life through your word, I pray that you would give us hearts that are captivated by your glory. God, that ultimately behold you, the resurrected Savior. God, that we would truly um, live these lives of worship that would want to go out and, and make this um, really the aim of our lives. God, I do pray that you might just expose to us this morning, just in the quietness of our own heart, what it is that we're living for, what we're, what we're tasked with in our minds every day. God, I pray that you would bring even greater alignment amongst our church's life, um, just to be about your business in this world. How would you do that? Would you make us power-filled and interested people in this incredible aim that you have in this world? We love you, Lord, and we pray these things.